lovely to see you. Very warm welcome to this church this morning and it's great to have many joining us from their homes and various other places uh, online today. Well, we've been uh, working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians and um, it's uh, week seven today and um, we're going to be studying in chapter four together. So if you've got your Bibles there, do, uh, do bring them out now, please. <clears throat> All of uh, Paul's letters contain a beautiful balance, a balance between Christian doctrine and Christian duty. In chapters one to three, over the last six weeks, we've been um, taught about things that God has done for us. And now, in the rest of the letter, from chapter four through to chapter six, it's we are learning what we need to do and who we need to be. And Paul moves from this mind-stretching theology to some very down-to-earth instructions on how it is we are to live the Christian life. To put it another way, chapters 1 to 3 are all about our riches in Christ. Chapters 4 through to 6 are about our responsibilities in Christ. And uh, Paul, right at the start of uh, this chapter, tells us that we are to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Basically, we need to learn how to walk our talk. And then he tells us some very practical ways in which to do that. And over the next few weeks, we are told that we are to live in unity, live in purity, live in harmony, and also live in victory. So this morning, I invite you just to walk through the first 16 verses of um, Ephesians chapter 4 with me, and we'll see what uh, the Lord might say to us today. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So, Right at the very start here, we are told that those who have been called by God to be his own, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. So what does that look like? Paul tells us. Firstly, be completely humble. Now, humility is one of those characteristics that when you know that you've got it, you've lost it. (laughs) Think about that one. Um, I heard, I'm sure it's a a fictional tale, of um, one church that was so um, thrilled with their pastor. Their own pastor was the humblest person that they'd ever met, so they gave him a badge to say so. The problem was that he wore it. I really do hope that's not a true story. But what is humility? I suppose, in one sense, it's not taking ourselves too seriously. It means not choosing to fight back. It means seeing yourself as you are, not too highly, not too lowly, but with sober judgment. It means to swallow your ego and your pride and allow someone else to get the last word, or on occasion to have the upper hand. It means choosing to lose the, the, uh, the battle in order to win the person. And we do this because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ the one who took the basin and the towel and washed the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples who were far too proud to do the same for one another. 
Our master, as we've been singing this morning, is the one who humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, and we celebrated that together in our communion service. So be completely humble, says Paul. Be gentle. This word can also be uh, translated to be meek, uh, a strength under control. If you're not sure what that means, (laughs) just think of Jesus. Just think of Jesus. Be patient. We also need to recognize that uh, the people that we are going to rub shoulders with this week are not the finished uh, not the finished object. They're not perfect, and we are not perfect, nor will we be this side of heaven. And Paul says that we need also to bear with one another in love. And then in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, for those who have been on this journey with us for several weeks, you will know that uh, Paul spends a lot of time speaking about the Church of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles, these groups of people who were so opposed to one another. But those two groups have been reconciled as one new people, and the cross did that. And what we are being told here by Paul is that we are to keep the unity that God has created. Keep the unity that God has created it. God created it. That was his job. Our job is to keep it. You know, sometimes in wedding services, I will say, um, good marriages are made in heaven. And then I will quickly add, but we need to do our own maintenance. And it's the same here. What we are, what we are reading in verse 3. That unity has been brought about by God. Only God could do that. And the unity that God has brought about is something that we must do our utmost to keep. <clears throat> Anglican church leader uh, David Watson once wrote, Love is the one crucial mark of the Christian and of the church in the eyes of the world. The man in the street, quite frankly, could not care less about our doctrinal differences our religious squabbles, or our churchy debates. Most of these, he feels, are no more than verbal or theological hair-splitting. Someone once asked Gandhi, the spiritual leader of India, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? He answered, Christians. And I pray that we are not the greatest hindrance to Christianity in Tamworth. In fact, I pray quite the opposite. I pray that we will be a blessing and take with us the aroma and the presence of Christ. Then in verse 4, there is one body, writes Paul, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Look at all these things that unite Christians. Um, There are lots of ones here. Lots of ones. One body. The church is referred to as the body of Christ by Paul. That every Christian is a member uh, of that body. And just as every part of the body is needed for a body to function properly, every person needs to use their gifts and their talents and their abilities in order to 
have the, the ministry of the church working properly as well. One body, one spirit. The same Holy Spirit dwells within each believer. The spirit that I have, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit that you have. Paul wrote some weeks ago that the spirit is the good deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope. If you remember way back in chapter 1 verse 18, Paul prays that wonderful prayer. And he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And we as Christians, we have a hope, don't we? A hope which is steadfast and sure. And one day we will see him face to face. Wow, what a day that will be. In fact, Paul writes elsewhere that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. The one that we've been singing about today, Jesus, who died for us, who rose from the, from, from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who is interceding for us, who is coming again. He is the one Lord that we have all bowed the knee to. One faith. Christians might differ on perhaps more minor issues of doctrine and practice. But can I say to you that what unites us is far greater than what separates us. That is so important to understand that. One baptism. Now baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward reality. The inward reality is that we've come to faith and trust Jesus. But the outward expression of that is being dunked into water in, in the water. Now I passionately believe that that is to be done after a person has made a decision to follow Jesus and not with a sprinkle of water, with a good old dunking. That's what I believe. But I know that some of my Christian friends might not believe that. They might believe that it's not to be done quite in that way. Now, baptism is one of those things. By the way, I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong. But I can live with that. I can live with that. Um, you know, I think of the words of... Um, St. Augustine, who once said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. So one baptism and then one God and Father. That those who have trusted Jesus, you who have trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, who have been on this journey of faith with him, that you can call God your Father. And Jesus taught us to pray, did he not? Our Father, not my Father, but our Father. Together, we are family. Have you still got your Bibles open? Okay, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Essentially, what Paul is telling us here is that our Christian unity is enriched by the diversity of our gifts. That's important. Let me tell you that again. Let me give you that again. Our Christian unity is enriched by the diversity of our gifts. Wouldn't it be very boring if we were all like each other? You know, if you were all clones of me. Shudder the thought. Or worse still, if you... No, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. But imagine that, being clones of one another. This is what um, Christian leader John Stott wrote. It's a great quote, this. Our unity 
is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless or colourless uniformity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is the exact replica of every other, as if we had all been mass-produced at some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. This is not just because of our different cultures, temperaments, and personalities, but because of the different gifts which Christ distributes for the enrichment of our common life. What a great quote, wasn't it? But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, verse 7. And then in the next number of verses, uh, from verse 7 through to verse 16, we're told three things. And I can see some of you are taking notes this morning. So write these three points down. In verses 7 to 10, we read that the giver of these gifts is the ascended Christ. Verse 11 tells us that the character of these gifts is extremely varied. And then in verses 12 to 16, that the purpose of these gifts that God, is, that God has given us through Christ is service. So the purpose of these gifts is service. So let's walk through these next few verses together. Firstly, verses 7 to 10. The giver of these gifts is the ascended Christ. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And you're all probably scratching your head saying, what on earth is Paul talking about there? What's going on here? Paul is a bit complicated on times, don't you think? I certainly think so. Well, see if I can help you get your heads around what he has just said. In ancient times, a military conqueror would lead um, the victory procession through his capital city with all of the captives of the foreign armies uh, behind, broken, defeated, men who were going to be awaiting their, their death. And the conquering military leader would share the spoils of war with those cheering crowds who came to celebrate the victory of their, their leader. And this is a picture that Paul paints of Jesus. Jesus ascending into heaven, a victorious leader with the captives, that is, the principalities and the powers and the defeated forces of darkness following him. And just as a victorious king would hand out gifts to his own people, Jesus is handing out gifts to his followers. No one is left out. That we all receive spiritual gifts from Jesus. You see, the moment that we entrusted our lives to Jesus, we became a part of his body. And he has given us a role to play in that. And some of you might be thinking here today, some of you who may be joining us this morning online may be thinking, what on earth can I do? I'm useless. I can't do anything. I haven't got any gifts. Well, I would say to you that if you are a Christian, you most definitely do have gifts. You might not yet have fully discovered them, 
but be assured that you are an absolutely important part of his body and his plan. Secondly, I said there were three points, and the second point is this, that the character of these gifts is extremely varied. If you look at verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Now, Paul mentions five ministry gifts here. There are many, many other ministry gifts which are also mentioned in the New Testament. And the diversity of God's church, of God's people, is quite wonderful. We're like a box of licorice all sorts. We don't have the same gifts. You have your gifts, I have mine gifts. As you all know, mine is singing and artistic dance. (laughs) Perhaps not. Yeah, wipe that from your mind straight away, please. You know, I've come across uh, people who are Christians, some who have inferiority complexes and some have superiority complexes. In other words, some people think too lowly of themselves and perhaps some might be in the opposite direction thinking too highly of themselves. Some see themselves as unworthy and inadequate, unable to do anything useful. Others might get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, well, God, isn't it great that you've got me on your team? And if they don't say it, they might think it. Well, both positions are wrong, absolutely. Every Christian, whether that person has been a Christian for 30 years or three months, has spiritual gifts. As I said a moment ago, they may not be as well-developed in a person who is a, a new Christian. But in essence, God has a role for us to play and uh, to be a part of his church and to bring honour to his name in this world. And I thank God for the variety uh, of his creative gifts, gifts which he gave to his church. As I say, in the New Testament, there are many lists. And I don't think the New Testament actually covers all of God's gifts because there are many other gifts that we have, even as I look around this body, even the guys at the back and their technical abilities. That is a gift to the church, you know. You know, we don't find Paul talking about it for obvious reason. You know, for those who are into cake baking or Sunday school teaching or gardening, I believe all of these in their own way can bring blessing to others and also honour to God. And I think that some of the more important gifts are those often the gifts which are performed behind the scenes. Nobody else is seeing what's happening. And there are many people who would say, I could never stand up in front of a crowd or even a camera. And maybe that is so. But that doesn't disqualify you from being useful in the kingdom of God. And thirdly, the purpose of these gifts is service. Let's look at verse 11 again. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what's the purpose of these gifts that Paul mentions? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. What's their purpose? The purpose, Paul tells us, is to equip and prepare God's people for works of service. That's what they're there for. 
ministry is not reserved for the few. It's the calling of each one of us. If you're a Christian, then you're a minister. Every member is a minister. You know, the pastor-teacher gift that we read of there is merely someone who helps people discover, develop, and exercise their own spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. The, the pastor or the minister doesn't do all the ministry, but equips others in order to do that ministry. Now, the traditional model of the church has been one of a pyramid, really, when you think of it. The pastor is there sitting um, precariously on the pinnacle. Then you have the elders, then you have the life group leaders, and then you have heads of department and so forth, and then everybody else comes um, in ever-increasing inferiority. What a load of nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. That's totally, totally unbiblical. I remember some years back, um, I was uh, officiating at a funeral service in an Anglican church uh, in a rural setting. And uh, a number of people from this church were with me on that, uh, that day. And we were waiting. It was, a, it was a burial in the grounds of the church. And we were just waiting for the, the village vicar to come along. And eventually he did. And uh, he, he called out because he saw a, a group of us there. Who's the minister? To which one of our number shouted out, all of us. And I thought that was an absolutely terrific answer. Because that theologically is, and, and what Paul is teaching here, absolutely right. It's all of us. And it caused a, quite a wry smile on the vicar's face. But the, the, the answer was absolutely right. You see, many people see the, the church as a kind of bus. The pastor does all the driving whilst the congregation are like snoozing passengers out for, for, for a day trip. But the biblical, um, the biblical model is not a bus, but it's a body. And then Paul continues in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And the picture which uh, Paul paints for us here is that the church grows into this healthy body, a body which is strong and vibrant. It's not influenced or swayed by deceptive ideas and philosophies, upright and honest, transparent and loving, with deep roots and firm foundations, mature and growing spiritually. And then Paul says, and this is the last verse that we're looking at today, so you can breathe a sigh of relief now. All those in the back row, you can wake up, it's okay. I'm only kidding. <laughs> verse 16. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I love those words. You know, if you underline your Bibles, well, underline those few words as each part does its work. What an amazing thought that is, isn't it? That the body, Christ's church, becomes healthy and grows as what? As each part does its work, which, of course, includes you. Could I invite the band back, please? And um, I'll just come into land as they're coming back. 
This passage that we've um, walked through very quickly this morning offers us a twofold challenge. And the twofold challenge, challenge is unity and diversity. That the church is the body of Christ, both united and diverse. So, what are those challenges then? Firstly, the challenge of unity. That God has created unity. between his people. God has created that unity. Are we, are you, doing your utmost to protect that unity which God has created? Do you do everything within your power to protect that unity? Are there things that you have said and done this week that might cause damage and division? If so, put them right. It may be that you need to ask for forgiveness. It may be that you demonstrate forgiveness to others. But let go. Don't gossip about others. Don't be in that place where you are listening to gossip about others. Seek to keep the unity of the Spirit, as Paul says, that God has created. So that's the first challenge. It's the challenge of unity. And the second challenge is one of diversity. Ministry is not the calling of just a chosen few. It is the responsibility and the great privilege for each of us. God has meant us to be participators, not spectators, as each part does its work. At the moment, um, some of you know this, that I've got a torn cartilage in my right knee, and it's painful. It's only a little cartilage, you may say. It's only one part of your body. It's a tiny little thing. But it's causing me problems. Do you know what? I can't play squash because... I, but I play squash with my right hand and my right arm. What's, why should a little cartilage cause such problems? And that's the way their bodies are designed. That a problem in one part can affect the whole. And so too we as the body of Christ, we need to remember that too. That it's as each part of us does our work that the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, will grow healthy and strong. Shall we pray together? Lord, we know that you love your church. Your church is your beloved bride, the one that you gave yourself for, the one that you take great delight in. And Lord, today, we are that church, your church. I just pray, Lord, that you will help us to see others around us through your eyes, that we will love others with the love that we ourselves have received. And I pray, Lord, that we will do our utmost to protect and guard the unity that you have created amongst us. Dear Lord, I just pray as well that you will give us eyes to see the spiritual gifts within us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give us the faith to exercise them, to go out of our comfort zones and to start ministering for your kingdom's cause and for your honour and praise. We pray.